Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. Hey everyone, we are in for a treat as we have the father of functional medicine. Literally, he is the father of functional medicine, the founder of Big Bold Health, uh, one of our all-time favorites here at Mind Buddy Green, a man who needs no introduction, Dr. Jeff Bland, back on the show. Jeff, welcome. Well, Jason, thank you. You know, it's interesting because um, I've been in this field long enough now that I'm now starting to be called the grandfather of functional medicine. So I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting into my venerable stage of my career, it appears. I, I love it. So on that note, you know, you, you alluded to your, your time spent in this space. And, you know, as I did mention, you are known as the founder of functional medicine, the father of functional medicine. And so how do you define functional medicine and, and how has it evolved since you founded it? Yeah, thanks. You know, I, I think it really has evolved and it. Uh, I recall back so clearly to when we started this this journey, uh, which was 1989. 1989, my wife, um, I'd been traveling a lot uh, in in my work at that point, and she said, Jeff, you know, you keep coming home and talk about all these wonderful people you've met, these leaders all around the world, and different thinking and different thoughts about what the healthcare system could be like, and, you know, why don't we sponsor a whiteboard meeting and you can maybe invite 20 or 30 of these thought leaders in from these different disciplines and we could just sit down and without licensure reimbursement, just talk about what is the nature of an ideal healthcare system. And that was kind of the birthing of the get together. We ended up having that meeting. She she hosted it at um, in Victoria, Vancouver, British Columbia on, on the island there. And um, it turned out that it was a really great meeting of minds. It was so uh, kind of positive that we decided to do it this, the next year, 1990. And it was at that year that I came up with this concept in, in the Saturday night before the final Sunday meeting, saying, you know, what we've been really talking about is something different than than disease risk reduction or uh, disease-focused uh, intention. What we've been talking about is health really defined as function. And when I th- and I've thought about it now over the decades since, because that's more than three decades ago. Uh, what I recognize that the insight that we collaboratively came up with in those meetings was that if you really want to form a health system, you you have to de-dock it from the disease care system. You can't build a healthcare system inside a disease care system. And we need a disease care system. So no disrespect intended at all. I'm a product of that education. I was in that field for many years as a medical school educator. Um, but if you really want to build out health, uh, health is really uh, built around function. Disease is built around ICD-9, diagnostic disease classifications, and trying to find what the histopathology is. And the whole focus of being involved in that system is getting a good diagnosis of a disease. Um, the other side of health is understanding why you're not functioning as well as you should be. It could be physical functioning, cognitive functioning, metabolic functioning, behavioral functioning. But somehow it's a different uh, trajectory that you're you're headed toward in a healthcare system than in a, a disease care system. And as we know, health is more than the absence of disease. So that then led uh, on a journey, which is now 30 plus years, of trying to understand this concept of function. And fortunately, we had as our ally uh, the growing body of science 
biological science, uh, medical science, around a term called systems biology, in which he, the concept was uh, to look upstream uh, at uh, root causes of what would be downstream uh, dysfunctions, which later could, over time, become diseases. So our construct was to build out a model that was built around this new emerging science, if you think back to 1990, it was fairly early, um, in the understanding of systems biology. Over the last three decades, I think we were very fortunate to choose both the term function and to, to uh, ally ourselves with the emerging science of systems biology, because those two are really defining and painting the mosaic of what healthcare is going to look like in the 21st century. So we, I believe, did skate, uh, to use the, the, the Gretzky analogy, we skated to where the puck was going, uh, partially just by fortune, but also partially because we had been following the literature pretty closely and seeing how the term function was being redefined to, uh, to move away from disability or geriatrics to actually defining a property of health that was related to resilience. So that, that's really how we started. And what's happened since, I think, is quite remarkable in that early on, uh, my wife and Dr. David Jones, who is uh, one of the, the kind of co-leaders in starting this whole movement, we had discussions and we, we said, um, let's not discriminate among different types of degrees. Let's not say this is centric to only one type of health practitioner. Let's just, if we're going to discriminate, let's discriminate on excellence. Let go, let's go after those individuals across the allied healing arts that really want to dig in deep and understand the origin of function. So these are people that are willing to open up their old books, their books of whatever, uh, to really study this in a different way. And, and we had a debate as to whether there would be any people, any anyone interested in that, because once you get through school and you get your accreditation and you you're um, licensed, the probability that you'd be interested in going back and studying biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, genomics, genetics, probably we thought would be fairly small. But actually, much to my delight, if we look at the last thirty years, we found that there were many people many really talented, dedicated people in the healing arts that were willing to do that, to go back and to really not only dust off, but also get new texts to study things that maybe in school they thought were not that important and just had to get through it and take a test and move on. But now they really wanted to know what was going on at, this, at the deep mechanistic level that would give them an interrogation opportunity of root causes. And I'm just so impressed with the dedication of now literally, I was going to say tens of thousands, but it's actually more than that. It's, it's hundreds of thousands of people over the last 30 years who have rededicated themselves to skill development in areas that most of my colleagues in medicine would say, oh, they'll never do that. That people will not go back and work that hard to get this knowledge. But it, it is reinforcing to me that there are those individuals who are so dedicated to their to their art, to their skill, that they're willing to spend that time and money because often they go to courses and they have to give up practice to do so and give up those revenue days. Uh, but we now uh, have had, uh, oh, and the ex nearly 100,000 people go through the um, Institute for Functional Medicine programs over the last 30 years. So I know that those people do exist. Wow. So upon reflecting in the past 30 years, you know, I've heard you mention function, systems biology, genetics, genomics. And so 
if we're going to think out in the future, where do you think we're going in the next 30 years? Or how about three years? 30, 30, 30, 30's tough. I'll, I'll give you a three. You know, where, where do you think the, the science-based, individualized approach is headed? Well, you know, I, uh, when I um, started down this path, and, and one of my colleagues who has been coming to my education courses for many years sent me something that when he was cleaning out his office, he sent me a syllabus cover of a seminar I did on gut endotoxemia, leaky gut, and its relationship to chronic inflammatory diseases. That was in 1985. It was a seminar I was giving for doctors in 1985 with that topic. So when I think about the acceleration of knowledge, which we're in right now, in part driven by the internet and the availability information that used to not be so readily available, but secondly, by the, the, the need that we have for being able to better manage chronic illness, particularly as we move into this post-COVID era where we're going to have millions of people seeking remediation from immune disturbances associated with long COVID. Um, what I see happening right now is the time compression has really occurred with regard to the adoption of things that we thought some years ago was going to take decades to occur. So now what we're seeing, and, you, and you've and you talked about it beautifully in, in um, Mind Body Green over the, over the months and years, is the convergence of all sorts of things that used to appear as if they were separate kind of isolated um, concepts like wearable devices. You know, we started down thinking of those as fitness trackers. But now we recognize uh, what, what we see happening with um, Garmin and, and uh, Fitbit and, and uh, Apple and uh, Aura Ring is that these are much more than, than fitness trackers. They are metabolic trackers. They're tracking physiology in a functional way. I, I did a, um, a blog uh, two years ago uh, in which I was talking about that I, be I believe the, uh, the Aura Ring that I wear uh, is going to prove to be an early warning assessment tool for understanding when your immune system is under distress, like if you have an infection. And um, we did a little pilot study, which I did in a series of blogs that kind of semi, semi, went semi-viral, in which I stepped out and, uh, in fact, I even communicated with Aura, and I said, I think your, your device is going to be used as an immune assessment tool, early warning immune assessment tool. Well, over the last now two years, studies have been published in the peer-reviewed medical literature showing that's exactly right that if you um, get early stage uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection, your aura ring tells you you've got a problem days, uh, maybe even a week before you actually get symptoms. And the reason for that is that these surrogate markers that are picked up by our, our physiological performance indicators are really measuring energy transfer through the body. And when you are activating your immune system, your immune system, when it's activated, can use up 50% of your metabolic energy. People don't understand that. That's why we don't like want to do high math and, and a lot of computational things when we're sick with the flu or the cold because our immune system is sucking up our energy and we just feel worn out and tired and not clear and foggy brain and so forth. So the, the, the development of the wearable device coupled with informatic uh, tools in the cloud that allow us now to capture and analyze this information so that people don't have to become experts in themselves, coupled with uh, the behavior science, which is really starting to, to address the issues of why people have difficult time changing and how to, how to modify change, 
process, coupled with what we're seeing with epigenetics, coupled with what we're seeing with nutritional biochemistry and phytochemistry, coupled together with what we're seeing with exercise science, stress management, uh, all of these things are converging together to create the revolution of the new healthcare system. And so when you say, what about three years? I think three years is probably achievable that we will have a revolutionary change. Five years on the outside, 30 years, this will be a whole lightning year. Uh, we'll be measuring all sorts of things in real time that we don't even think about today. You know, when you mentioned convergence, I can't help but think when I founded Mind Body Green in 2009, I would hear a lot, why green? Why Mind Body Green? You know, I, I don't get it. I would, I would say, what do you mean you don't get it? Mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, environmental well-being, all connected with one word, not three, mind, body, green. Fast forward to today, I think everyone kind of gets the importance of environmental well-being, that we have a climate crisis, the need for more sustainable practices across a variety of industries. So with that said, can you talk a little bit about environmental well-being and and how it fits into functional medicine and you know how sustainability uh, it needs to play a role here as we think about you know our own well-being and the health of the planet. Yeah, thank you. Well, first of all, I want to give you a shout out because I think you were prescient, no question about it. I think this Mind Body Green trilogy as as a it reminds me of psychoneuroimmunology. It put three words together and it forms a new discipline. And, and that's that's what you did by connecting those three words together. And green as a metaphor to me is really powerful. The, the color green in nature, you know, is chlorophyll. And chlorophyll is the transducer of energy of the environment into the energy of the organism. If you think of what photosynthesis does and then how we eat plants that do that energy for us through capturing sun's energy and into, into plant energy food, which we then consume. So that I think that this construct of connecting through the color green the nature of our intersection and interrelationship with our environment is a very powerful metaphor that lends itself to all sorts of artistic rendering. Um, and so when I think of where we are as, as a community, a functional medicine community, uh, our function is dependent upon and intimately interwoven with the function of our environment. And this is one of the reasons that I, uh, the last several years, have kind of tried to ask the question deeply, what is the intersection point that planets connect to microbes, connect to plants, connect to animals, connect to humans? Is, is, there, is there a thread of continuity that I can think of that ties those all together from a physiological perspective uh, or a network biology perspective? And the answer is yes, and it's the immune system. And that's why I've been so heavily committed to this immune interrogation, because our planetary systems is the planet immune system. The carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, sulfur, oxygen uh, cycles are the planet's immune system. The planet's immune system is connected to microbe immune systems. Every microbe, be it a bacterium or a fungus, a fungus has its own immune system. That immune system is connected to a plant's immune system. I, people don't understand that a plant has both innate and adaptive immune system function, uh, as does uh, as do animals and, and do humans. And they're all cross-talking and interconnected together to give rise to resilience or to alarm reactions to a, a system gone wrong. 
And when the system is in a, in a, a state of imbalance, every component of that interconnection is affected. It's not just one component, it's all. The planet is connected to the organisms, connected to the microbes, connected to the soil mycorrhiza, connected to the food we eat, connected to the humans and their health. So for me, the immune system was a connector. It was a point of entry into this broader discussion, into the mind-body-green connection. Now we recognize even our thoughts, attitudes, and beliefs are signals that are sent to our genes that cause epigenetic modulation of their function and when we feel in a disturbed environment, it could be a social environment, the so-called social determinants of disease. When our environment is disturbed, we are disturbed, our genes are disturbed, and they fight back as an alarm reaction called inflammation. And so all these things are interconnected in, you have to find what is the point of entry. And each person, I believe, has a, has a zone of uh, opportunity. <laughs> Some people have a broader zone of opportunity than others. But there is no human being that doesn't have some zone of opportunity, even if it's own, their own individual lives. And so if you can get people to understand that how they act and behave and think interconnects with every other organism and the planet itself, and it's the combination of all those together that gives rise to evolutionary history, that is a very, very powerful, uh, empowering concept that I believe is at the frontier of where we are as a society right now. Well said. I think you've answered about three or four of my questions uh, <laughs> in, in one. So, you know, you mentioned everyone has an entry point, and in some regard, you know, I think I think we all know we need to play our our part with regards to climate change, and the easiest way for many is we're all consumers. You know, we all go shopping. I think the natural product industry has come such a such a long way in reacting to consumer demand, companies adapting to demand. I believe consumers vote with their dollars, and then companies change, large or small. They go where the dollars are, um, and, and I think that that's a good thing. Um, you know, I'll, I'll use an example. I look at electric vehicles, cars, hybrids. Every major automotive maker in the world. Is, is, is coming out with electric vehicles. Some of them are pledging to go all electric next five to six years. It's, it's amazing. And so as consumers, what are some, I'm curious, what, what are some of the things you look for when you go shopping? Because it can be quite confusing, quite overwhelming. It could be quickly become an episode of Portlandia where, where not, you know, not, nothing is good enough. But I'm curious, you know, when you're shopping, whether it's for, for groceries or for anything, what are some of the things that you, you, you try to look for? Yeah, thank you. And uh, I would uh, say my, my list mirrors very closely what you at Mind, Body, Green have been advocating and educating your community about. So um, this is probably not going to be any revelational list. I came on this thinking very, very strongly because I go to many meetings. I've traveled over 6 million miles in my years. It's a lot of time on planes and in hotels. Um, but I have had the opportunity to visit lots of different extraordinary people in different places who are revolutionary in their thinking and trying to create value propositions that will help improve health of individuals in the planet. And um, 
So I, when I come back on these meetings, I often um, download on my colleagues. And I've been very fortunate to have people that have worked with me for 25 years now. So they, they know the Jeff Bland Monday morning spiel very well when I come back from a meeting. And um, they're very tolerant, you know, and, and patient with me. So one day about uh, a little over two years ago, one of those individuals, Trish Yuri, who's worked with me for many years, said, you know, Jeff, you, you're, you're railing and, and talking about uh, things that we can do and how we should do it and, and why you think the system is broken. And, um, you know, you're a fairly big guy in size. Um, you've always got these bold ideas. Maybe you need to find a vehicle to express this. So maybe you need to put another company together called Big Bold Health. And, and that was the origin of this, uh, this thing that got us in the Himalayan Tartary buckwheat agriculture, being the, being the resurrecting this 2,500-year-old food that got us into uh, owning a plant up in Dutch Harbor, Alaska to produce uh, sustainable oil-related products that have never been seen in this, in this planet in the previous times. It, it got me into really thinking, not theoretically, but how can I actually make some changes to understand what the system is from the ground level up? And this is after my 25 years of metagenics and, and kind of uh, de-docking from that, uh, that company and having some freshness of perspective. And what I came to recognize is that the principal things that you need to incorporate, I believe, to, to be consistent with this uh, objective of being part of the solution and not part of the problem is, number one, transparency. And because it's very easy to hide things, and, and I have to say, you know, having built up and been, been a part of building up Metagenics from just a few employees to having 2,000 2, employees and being in 36 countries over the course of years that I was involved, um, you're confronted with all sorts of things as you grow a company up or grow an endeavor up where you've got to make value decisions because it's expedient to sometimes say, well, my value was not in that thing. I need to change my opinion. I, used to, I need to use situational ethics here, and I, I'm going I'm to shade this decision a little bit based on what's um, commercially more valuable in the moment. And those are the tough times where you have to kind of stand up for your values. And it all comes down to transparency, because if you're being held accountable to being transparent, where everyone can see what you've done, then it's like um, a guidance uh, factor for you as a GPS in terms of your um, your GPS, your your cultural GPS. So I think transparency number one is extraordinarily important, and that would be as a shopper, is that company that I'm buying things from uh, transparent with regard to and authentic about their transparency and not uh, manipulative. So that would that would be number one. Number two is how sensitive is that company to their place in this broader global ecosystem that we're trying to leave as a legacy to those that come after us that is, is as good or better than that which we found? And are they really addressing issues within their zone of, of control, because maybe some things they can't deal with, but within the zone of control, are they really attentive, sensitive to those things and doing something with advocacy, knowing that no one's perfect, no company's perfect, but are they doing something uh, that that really is intentional and followed the the uh, consistency with their goals uh, to be part of the solution? And and by the way, that's one of the reasons that we made a decision with Big Well Health to become a public benefit um, corporation rather than a C corp, 
because we recognize that that in, um, held us accountable to certain kinds of social consciousness as a PVC that were not necessarily required as a C-Corp. You could be a C-Corp and have those same values, but it wasn't baked into the system. Being a PBC, a public benefit corporation, required us to maintain that PBC registration or certification to um, be audited and, and be vetted relative to those things that we believe are important for sustainability. So that would be um, number two. Number three on my list would be to make sure that uh, the company that you're buying uh, products and services for is, is connected to other products within the ecosystem that aspire to the same thing. It could be recyclable packaging, it could be no waste, uh, uh, pollutant, uh, pollutant free processing, it could be uh, truth in advertising. Because uh, oftentimes what we find is because no corporation or company or product supplier stands alone, they have people that are providing goods and services to them. Sometimes if you do a little deeper drilling, you'll find that they're goods and services providers are not living up to the same standards. And so I think this concept of transparency, accountability, and um, uh, truthful communications to me are the ways that we kind of guide our shopping uh, and buying decisions. I love it. And for me personally, I, I think about it in two ways. One, education. You know, read labels, get educated on labels, whether you're buying food, whether you're buying a personal care product, while you're, you're buying clothing, just be educated on labels. If, if you don't understand the label, probably not a good thing, uh, but get educated. Um, and then buy less stuff. You know, if you think of food waste as one of the largest contributors to, to carbon footprint, uh, it, it's top five. Uh, according to Paul Hawken, drawdown. So, like, don't, don't buy as much whatever you whatever food you get. Make sure you eat it or buy less food, and and that goes with products in general. You know, whether you're, you're buying stuff for your home, whether you're you know we're, we just moved, so it's top of mind for me. Uh, clothing, buy less clothing, buy better clothing, buy a great cotton T-shirt you love that you're going to wear forever. Don't buy crappy clothing that you go through. Buy less stuff that that buy good stuff that lasts. And have less of it. You really like it, you know. Do do your Marie Kondo, if you will, on your your inventory of what you have at home. Just and I think about it in those two ways because I do think it could be quite overwhelming. So you know, get educated, read labels, and then buy less stuff. Buy things you love. Spend more on it, but make sure you really love it. I think that education. Uh... You know, fortunately, now we do have the, the Internet. You can go to the website of the companies. You can kind of get a sense as to what they're saying about themselves. And you can see if it sounds like marketing hype or it really sounds like they're disciplined to what they're saying. And you, you can read through, if you go to websites, pretty much those that are authentic from those that are spelling, giving you a marketing story. And so, you know, coming back to this idea of better for you, in terms of us as individuals and laddering up to, to better for the planet. You've, you talked about the microbes and we, we've talked about this. We had Dr. Patrick Hannaway, who's a colleague of, of yours on our show to talk about this. I think it's fascinating, zeroing in the microbiome and how 
there are studies that say you're, you know, we're, we're all obsessed with the, you know, the microbiome. We've got to have our kimchi. We got to take our probiotic. We got to do all those those things we need to do. We have diversity and and a multitude of greens and fruits and veggies to have a very diverse, healthy microbiome. But our microbiome, where we live, our surroundings, also plays a significant role. Can we talk about that? The connection. It's not just you got to do all the good stuff in terms of your your what you're putting in your mouth, but where you live, your surroundings also plays a role in your, your microbiome. Yeah, thank you. I think that's a, a really an important point, this whole concept of rewilding, that uh, getting out in nature, getting exposed to the diversity of uh, things that we pick up information from, from our environment, like things in the soil, <laughs> uh, friendly, uh, friendly organisms. I'm, I'm really fortunate. I'm getting a really big education right now because our, our little big bold health company recently took on an institutional investor, our first first one. And um, it's, a, it's a group called S2G uh, Ventures. And they have about 30 portfolio companies that they've invested in that are all in a regenerative and sustainable ag and marine related technologies and, and companies. And I'm now in concert and being educated by a number of these companies that are really doing remarkable things to bring technology, I call it humanistic technology, into the sustainability and, and into the re regenerative um, field. Uh, one of those companies is a, a company, um, Solario Bio, uh, that's in um, Massachusetts. It's a kind of a tech transfer company out of MIT. And the founder and the members of that company are looking at the specific microbes that are, live around organic vegetables. Because it turns out that each organic vegetable has its own microbiomial community. Just like we have a gut microbiome, plants have their own in a healthy plant, in a healthy soil, has its own unique microbiome. And it turns out that when you bring those plants with their own microbiome, it improves their functional capabilities in terms of their nutrient delivery, in terms of their digestion. So this is what we, we actually have seen with people who eat diverse diets. A, a lot of plant-based diets come organically that they will bring forward with them these microbiome components of the plant that grew in the soil that then patterns to a degree their own host microbiome. So the microbiome of a vegetarian, of a vegan is different than from that of a um, omnivore, and that of an organic vegan is different than a uh, vegan who eats Fritos and Coca-Cola and calls it vegetarian. So <laughs> the I that was an, an probably not the best example, but no, no, it, it's a good example. It's good perspective. Just because you're vegan doesn't mean you're healthy. Yeah, yeah. So I think what you're saying is that there are so many factors that. Um, influence uh, our, our own integrity of our community that's seen in our microbiome. Let's, let's use another example, and that is distress. Does living in a distressful environment alter the gut microbiome? And the answer is yes. There are many studies now showing that um, when you're under distress, and particularly long-term chronic distress, maybe in socially deprived environments, culturally deprived environments, that you have an altered microbiome. That altered microbiome may then make you more uh, susceptible to diabetes or more susceptible to obesity. So we, we I, in fact, I'm 
kind of ticked off right now. I'm just going to vent for a half a second. Uh, I just saw yesterday on the news this big breakthrough study that's uh, coming out of work done down in um, in Louisiana uh, that uh, indicates that there are certain genotypes that are susceptible to obesity. So these are the genes for obesity. I think this is total misleading and totally um, aggravating for those of us in the field because you might have different genes that give rise to the different ways that you process food. No question about that. That your metabolism is in, is in part tied to your genetics. So that's true. But to, to say that your metabolism tied to your genetics then translates into being obesity is dependent upon how you live. If you eat a bunch of processed foods, you know, uh, living in a food desert, ultra past, uh, processed foods, then sure, those genes that you said were obesity genes, they're not obesity genes, they're, they're genes that are responding to a lousy diet that wasn't made for good human nutrition based on your genotype. So rather than say you're born with a predisposition of obesity, we should say you're born with uniquenesses as to how you process calories and that the more you can eat these good things, the less likely your genes are going to try to respond back in being in a hostile environment. And, and to me, that's just taking the same information but twisting it around in the right configuration. Rather than feeling people were born with bad genes, you're going to make them obese. That, that to me, is a self-defeating exercise to begin with. And I don't think it's true because if you look at genetically diverse cultures that have had specific lifestyles, you don't see obesity. America is the most obese society in, in the world on a percentage basis, not because we have bad genes, because of the way we've been treating our genes with our lifestyle and our environment. Agreed. Your genes are not your destiny. And I, and I think it's an important message and 100% agreed. It's, it's very aggravating to see news like that get attention. So in closing, I always love a good tip. And so we live in this exciting time in health and well-being. You know, you mentioned wearables, uh, genomics. What's something that's underrated in your opinion right now that we should be paying more attention to? We've got a really smart audience. They're doing all the right things. What, what's something that's underrated that you don't think is getting enough attention that we should be incorporating into our wellness routine? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I wrote an article that was recently published in, in a medical journal that I, I intentionally had a very provocative title. I said, the 21st century medical discovery that will change global healthcare irreversibly in the years to come. Pretty provocative title. And what was that global discovery? That global discovery is what a lot of people are calling epigenetics, that our genes get tagged with messages from our environment that then tells our genes how they're going to be expressed. So it's not just the genes in and of themselves, it's how they're expressed. Now, what is then the translation of that that makes this so important? So through all of my years of training, uh, we, we, I think, uh, celebrated and maybe even worshipped at the altar 
of bugs causing disease, injury causing um, dysfunction, and um, genes being imperfect. Those were the causes of why medicine existed, to save us from accidents, from infections, and from inborn errors that we didn't have a chance to do anything about. We just got whatever the luck of the draw was from our genes. However, now, today, 21st century, we recognize that there was something else that was considered to be soft science, to not be in the in the bailiwick of medicine that was relegated to second party importance, and that gets lumped under what we call social determinants of disease. We didn't think that was hard science, and we didn't think it should occupy a big part of medicine because that was soft. It was sociology, it was cultural, it was, it was you know, the way people lived, and it really didn't have a direct relationship with these major disease-producing entities. Now, if I look at 21st century medicine, we now recognize that, yes, it is true that environmental pollutants can epigenetically mark our genes. It's true that drugs and alcohol can mark our genes. It's true that our diet can mark our genes. We now know that polyphenols in our diet can have a positive effect on epigenetics, but high-sugar diets can have a negative effect on our genes. Um, but now, for the first time, we recognize that psychobehavioral aspects send signals to our genes that mark them as well. They also are just as hard in their science as our chemical entities that we've known for years can cause changes in our epigenomics. This is called socioepigenomics. It's a mergingly rapid understanding in science. It describes why second-generation Holocaust victims can be sick even though they were not subjected personally to Holocaust because their genes of their parents were marked by the trauma of Holocaust. I'm talking about the work of Rachel Yehuda at, uh, at, at um, Einstein Medical School. Um, we now recognize that um, deprivation in childhood um, and being in an environment where you're at fear for your life as a child because of war, because of, of turmoil and, and uh, challenges to your security can mark your genes and create a change in how your genes are expressed and put you into a state of alarm. We recognize that this concept of post-traumatic stress syndrome, which used to be considered kind of a sociological phenomenon, is actually a physical phenomenon that the traumatic events like 9-11 so mark the genes of those individuals with epigenetic marks from that social experience of being exposed to that traumatic event that they're still living now, even decades later, with the legacy of those events. Now, the important thing of this story, because it sounds a little bit like a downer that I just described, like, oh, my word, now you can't get away from it. It's now been discovered that these are reversible marks. That's the important thing. They have plasticity. Yes, they can be put on, but they can also be taken off. And they can be replaced with new marks. And that is our opportunity in the 21st century, is to find ways that pull back some of the traditional histories of our culture.
This could be smoke lodges. This could be Chautauquas. This could be toxicity, you know, various ways of getting rid of toxic demons. There's all sorts of psychobehavioral techniques that have been used by cultures historically that we now see socially, sociologically remark our genes, get ridding, get rid, getting rid of marks that actually incorporate ourselves into a sustained state of aggravation, alarm, frustration, anger, all these, these emotions of fear. And so I think as a culture, we're a fearful culture right now. We've been imprinted with all sorts of things that have uh, come from these multiple marks that layer themselves on top of our genes that then suppress the white light of good health that are in part sociologically uh, related, in part chemically related, and part lifestyle related. This is our opportunity now to leverage this in the 21st century to regain the white light of good health that does reside in almost everyone's genes, if we can just let it um, radiate through. And that's why we started Big Bold Health, for that very reason, because I thought maybe the immune system was a good place to start. If we could re-nourish our immune system to give us more resilience, we could take on a lot, we have a lot more headspace for dealing with the unexpected in life in environment. Amen, Jeff, thank you so much.